2: This week's episode of the Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a 30-day trial complete with a free audiobook download, visit secretlibrarypodcast.com Audible. This is the Secret Library Podcast, the truth about writing books. Here we are at episode 102. My guests today are Chris Gillibo and Tom Hodgkinson. And we'll be talking all about business practices and the ways you can actually put a book at the center of your career rather than something that you have to do on the fringes. I have a couple of announcements again, and the first of which is that I was heartbroken after last week's shout out to Juno Diaz and meeting him at LA Times to get the news about the Me Too allegations and it's something I've been thinking about a lot and something that um, I think is really hard for all of us to think about and to get our minds around um, as creative people and how we're supposed to feel and react to all of these things. Um, I've made a first attempt to try to write about it and write about sort of my thoughts of writing in a scary era. Um, in this week's newsletter. And if you're interested in getting my newsletter, which comes out every week and has sort of thoughts on the writing life, not usually on a topic this heavy, but when it comes up, um, I feel like I have to say something at least to acknowledge what's going on. And you can join in at secretlibrarypodcast.com and click on newsletter to join footnotes. In addition, I really want to thank everyone who's been so supportive about the Patreon. We have another new Patreon supporter, Emily. So thank you, Emily, so much. Um, We do have some sponsorship, you'll hear. We have Audible named at the beginning of the show. But these are actually for podcasts, fairly small donations. And what really makes a difference is that listeners care about the show and share it. And thank you to everyone. We got some really wonderful reviews this week. Um, So you can leave reviews at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash review. We made it easy. To get to the link, and that really, really makes a difference. And it makes a difference if you support the Patreon at slash secret library because it allows us to continue the show, which is what we really, really love doing. So, enough of those things. Um, I'm ready to get to the conversation where we can actually talk about writing, which is what we're really excited about. So, let's get on with our interviews. On the show today is Chris Gillibo, who is a New York Times bestselling author and modern day explorer. During a lifetime of self-employment that included a four-year commitment as a volunteer executive in West Africa, Chris has visited every country in the world, which totals 193, and he did this before his 35th birthday. Since then, he's modeled the proven definition of an entrepreneur, someone who will work 24 hours a day for themselves to avoid working one hour a day for someone else. Chris's first book, The Art of Nonconformity, was translated into more than 20 languages. His second book, The $100 Startup, was a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, selling more than 500,000 copies worldwide. His third book, The Happiness of Pursuit, was published in September 2014 and was also a New York Times bestseller. His fourth book, Born for This, will help you find the work you were meant to do, and his newest book, Side Hustle, will help you create a new source of income in 27 days. He also started the uh, the daily podcast Side Hustle School, which is downloaded more than 2 million times a month. Kind of amazing. So you may recognize his voice very clearly from this show. And every summer in Portland, Oregon, Chris hosts the World Domination Summit, a gathering of creative, remarkable people with thousands in attendance. He's also the founder of Pioneer Nation, Unconventional Guides, the Travel Hacking Cartel, and numerous other projects. So in addition to loving Tom Hodgkinson's books, I have also long been a lover of Chris Gillibo's books and a big fan of his podcast. So when I met him recently at a book event, I knew that I had to have him on to talk about the way that writing books can actually be the center of a really successful creative career. So as someone who has never worked for other people, who has always been an entrepreneur, I think Chris is an incredible example of someone who has taken his desire to lead an unconventional and creative life. And to build that around writing books, which is not what we generally hear. We generally hear like, oh, you have to do something else in order to pay for a life writing books. But for Chris, writing books is not a side hustle. It's his main hustle and everything else gets structured around it. So for anyone who's thought of writing books as something they want to do with their time and to really build a business that supports them through the process of writing, this is your interview. I really hope you enjoy listening to Chris Guillebeau as much as I enjoyed speaking with him. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for coming on.
1: Hey, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me.
2: So you have possibly the most familiar voice to me coming on the show because (laughs) of your show, um, Side Hustle School, which I think is a good place for us to start, which is that started with a book and then became a Mm -hmm. podcast. And I think one of the things I really wanted to talk about with you is how you've managed to build a life around writing books, whereas most of us listening are trying to build a life writing books around the rest of our life. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about how you started writing books, and then how you've gotten to this place where books are really the hub of everything else that you're doing.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different um, different pathways we could go down for that. I guess, um, you know, so for me, I, I wanted to be a writer. Like if I go back Let's say 15 years. Like I'm I'm 40 years old now, just about. And when I was between 25 and 30, I was like, what do I want to do next? And I had been traveling for a bit. I was an aid worker for a while in West Africa. I was getting ready to start this quest of going to every country in the world. And for me, if I go back to like even further, when I was a kid, like I loved to read. I was always a big reader, and I could think of a number of books that changed my life. And so I was like, I want to write books. And you know, then, uh, you know, nine years ago, basically I started a blog called the art of nonconformity and it was, that was kind of a a blog that led to my first book, um, was also the same title, the art of nonconformity. And for me, um, probably like some of the listeners, perhaps like the book wasn't, it wasn't like a marketing plan. Like I've heard people say like, Oh, my book is my business card or whatever. And like, for me, I actually loved writing books and I loved reading books, like I said. So Um, that was kind of how everything started and it, and it kind of went from there. I mean, there's quite a, quite a journey, you know, from nine years ago to now, but it was like a cycle of, you know, I'm building community. I'm writing about things that are important to me and hopefully that matter to other people as well. Uh, then I'm going out on these long tours that I do to meet my readers and learn from them and then going back to do it again. And I've been doing it one way or another, you know, ever since. And the, the podcast, um, uh started on January 1, 2017 and I I do it every day I do it 7 days a week and so at the time that we're talking I think I've completed now 430 episodes um it's called Sidasil School like you mentioned and there's a book associated with that as well so lots of different ways we could go but I'd love to to talk about whatever is most you think would be most helpful to your audience
2: I think one thing I think is that you have so many amazing ideas like you started with Art of Nonconformity and and one thing at the center is I love everybody will have chris's show notes um in the show notes we will have his site which is a treasure trove for your resources Mm -hmm. but one thing i want to highlight is your philosophy which you talked about Mm -hmm. which to me is so inspiring and i think most people listening will relate which is Mm -hmm. your philosophy which i'll read straight up is Mm -hmm. you don't have to live your life the way other people expect and you can do good things for yourself and help other people at the same time and if you decide if you don't decide for yourself what you want to get out of life somebody else will end up deciding for you which is huge Mm -hmm. And there's usually more than one way to accomplish something, all of which I think mm-hmm. is brilliant. And so knowing all of this and knowing you didn't want to take the traditional path and also knowing how many amazing ideas you have, how did you start, you know, how do you pick which book you want to write?
1: Yeah, I think maybe a mistake that I made, I mean, thank you for saying saying all that. Um, you know, in, in retrospect, I can look back and say, oh, yeah, it does, that does sound pretty nice and encapsulated. But I think it's good to kind of just point out that I, I didn't really know like what I was doing in the beginning. and I, I was just kind of like one foot in front of the other. And I have this guiding value, this guiding philosophy, the manifesto, as you said. Um, but it's not like everything has been strategic along the way. So I think maybe, um, so I mentioned a mistake, not really a mistake, but um, when I f- first started like, oh, I'm going to write a book. Uh, I have to put everything into that book. That was my thesis at the time. I was like, oh, if you're going to write a book, like you have to put everything into it. And I think that's that's often a mistake that people make when they're writing their first book. It's like, I've got, like, here's my whole life experience. Here's everything that I want to offer. Uh, or maybe I couldn't decide between two or three books. And so I put it all together in one um, and that, that can be challenging. So actually I've, I've had a little bit more success, I would say commercially, and also just in terms of ease of writing when I've had a more focused topic and said, okay, like I, I know exactly what I want to write about and it's going to be, you know, this topic. I mean, the last book side hustle was very prescriptive. It was like, I have this 27 day process that I'm trying to take people through and I know pretty much what I want to say. It's just a matter of figuring out how to say it. Uh, that was so much easier than If I go back a couple of books, um, I wrote a book called The Happiness of Pursuit, which was about my quest to go to every country in the world. But it was also kind of telling the broader story of quests and other people who undertake quests. And, you know, eventually I had kind of a philosophy and message that came out of that. But when I started, it was like it was a long road to kind of figure out, okay, what is what is it that I actually want to say? So these days, probably the number one thing that I try to follow myself and what I would advise people is like the more clarity you can have in the beginning, like so much the better. And don't worry if, if you're, you know, thinking, oh, how can I get all this stuff in one project? It's much better to like pick one thing and go forward and then do something else after that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I will say that I absolutely loved the happiness of pursuit though. So oh,
1: thanks. I'm oh, thanks. glad
2: you stuck through it, but it does. I mean, there is a through line and I think it's important mm-hmm. to know that that's usually, it seems like through lines in people's careers are more obvious looking back than they are looking forward.
1: Exactly. Right. Right. There's the, I forget what it is. The classic Steve Jobs quote about that, about it doesn't make sense, you know, but when you kind of, you can't connect the dots looking forward, but when you look back, there's this, there is that through line, as you said. And I think if you're, you know, not to be like, woo woo or whatever, but if you are kind of following a path and you are kind of being intentional about your choices, um, then it does kind of tend to lead to something as opposed to like, you know, if if you, if you don't have intentionality, if you're not, you know, sure, what's important to you. I think then that's harder.
2: Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning, if we can, mm-hmm. with Art of Nonconformity, yep. and talk about uh-huh. the process. Because now I think uh-huh. you have this beautiful your routine. You talk about about mm-hmm. this many every eighteen months. I write a book and then I go on mm-hmm. a tour, yep. and you've developed that. But at the very, right. very beginning, you were starting a blog. You had this idea, and I wonder if we can connect to the the part of mm-hmm. you that was not sure you ever wanted to work for somebody else. Realized you wanted to write books. And okay. How did you start that process of getting to publishing the art of nonconformity?
1: Right, right. I mean, there's so there's a few different things. Uh, the whole part about not wanting to work for anybody else—that that's kind of like a you know 15 year old Chris realization. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I pretty much knew like like from early early adulthood um, that I never wanted to have a real job. So that that was all that. Um, but to maybe make it more relevant, you know, to to your great listeners, you know, about the books specifically, yeah, it was okay. I'm, I want to, I want to write a book. I've had these different experiences. I do feel really fortunate. Um, I feel like I have something to say, which I think is always, you know, the most important thing. If you're going to write a book, make sure you have something to say. I feel like I had something to say and, you know, and it was a matter of logistics and practicalities. Like, how does it work? How does the publishing industry work? Well, you know, in some ways it's, it's opaque. In some ways it's like, you have to like, you know, there are these secrets you have to kind of like, you know, make your way in it. But in other ways it hasn't really changed in like, you know, I don't know, 100 years in some ways, right? So, there is a there is a way, like there is a path forward. So in my case, it was I'm starting this blog, I'm writing you know, about these ideas, and then I'm connecting with people, and then I'm then I'm at a certain point pestering people, and I'm writing to authors that I knew, I'm trying to connect with an agent, and you know, lots of agents never wrote me back, and I tried. Then we you know finally connected with a great agent, and we pitched the book to like. I don't know, fifteen publishers, and fourteen of them said no. And you know, I always think it's this is a question I get from time to time, like on the tours, people are like, "How did you choose your first publisher?" <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, well, l- let me tell you. And basically, like they chose me. They were the only one, you know, who said yes. And I was like, great, you know. And then like, I have the call with David, my agent, and then like, you know, it's like a few minutes later, I call him back. And I'm like, oh, by the way, how much were they offering? You know, like that wasn't even part of the conversation. You know, <laughs> maybe, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, right? But not, but not so much because it was like I want to break through however I can break through. And then after that, you know, then I have to make this a success. I have to prove myself. And so that's when I went into the tour and like, I'm going to do everything I can to make this, you know, commercially successful so that I not for the sake of of selling, but for the sake of opportunities, for the sake of reach, for the sake of influence and impact. Uh, And, you know, what you do, I mean, you you know, this and a lot of your listeners do, I'm sure as well, what you do with your first book is really going to affect the opportunities available to you for your second and your third and so on. And so I, I, you know, from there, uh, it was, it was a, you know, a more kind of defined process. Um, but getting to that point was just kind of knocking on lots of doors and trying different things. And some things, uh, most things actually didn't work, but a couple of them did.
2: Yeah. And then it went on to be translated into more than 20 languages, which is incredible.
1: Well, and there's some, I mean, that's great. It is incredible. But there's also some some luck and good fortune to that. And I realized that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to talk a little bit too, because you in talking about your schedule, which everyone can see on your site, where you write a book about every eighteen months, another thing mm-hmm. that's been really important in the process of your book writing is going out and meeting people. You've done mm-hmm. really amazing book tours, and especially with Side Hustle School, where we got to meet. Um, yeah, you've been presenting um, more involved presentations for people, where they get to connect mm-hmm. with you and connect with each other. And as a ident- openly identified introvert. How is it to you know spend all this time writing alone and then to have an active strategy where you're connecting yep. with other people as part of your books?
1: Yeah, that's also something that's that's evolved a bit. um it's It's definitely changed my life for the better. It's not about uh, being an introvert and trying to be extroverted. It's nothing like that. It's just recognizing like, Oh, like there's this great community out there. There's really interesting people. And as I connect with them and engage with them, it's going to make my work better. And hopefully I'm going to learn about them, too, so that I know, you know, just how to how to do a better job when I write the next book or or whatever. So that process was also organic like everything else. Um, I began doing meetups uh, for my blog readers uh, in that first year of the blog. And I went to New York and did one and, you know, like 50 people came and I was just, I heard their stories like they're, they're doing all this awesome stuff. They have interesting projects of their own and, and there, somehow they had connected with, with my work and then they're connecting with one another. And I thought there's just so much, there's so much to this. There's so much beauty to it that it went, went far beyond what I initially expected. I mean, I thought I was just writing about going to see the world or whatever, my little travel quest and. You know, fortunately, it ended up growing, you know, much beyond that vision. And I I don't think that would have happened if I hadn't started the meetups. So so then when it came time to to have the book out, it's kind of like, what is the logical extension of that? OK, the logical extension of the meetups I've been doing and then coupled with the fact that I'm still like on this travel quest to go to every country. You know, what, what seems like holistic or, or congruent integrated with, you know, this new thing now that I have a book out. And naturally it was, well, I'm going to go on a book tour and I, I'm going to do it my own way. Right. Because I write about unconventional ideas. So the tour has to be unconventional as well. Um, that first tour, I went to all 50 states. Um, I went to every province in Canada. So and I kind of set this up together with my readers like the publisher helped a little bit, but not a ton. And, you know, for the most part, it was like this self-managed process and that was super fun. It was, it was, you know, it it was tiring, of course, it was stressful in some ways, but it was also just, you know, wonderful. And it kind of allowed a lot of other things to happen after that as I got to know lots of other people.
2: That's amazing. And then you've also done something which I thought was really clever with Side Hustle School, which was to ask people, hey, Mm -hmm. do you want me to come to your city? If there's enough of you that say yes, then I will come. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I actually started that with the first book tour um, way back, you know, eight years ago or something. I mean, just just because everything was organic and it was kind of like, you know, okay, I'm going to all 50 states. But, you know, what does that mean? Like there are different cities and, you know, lots of states have two or three places that you could go. How do you choose which one? And then beyond the fact of like all 50 states, because that's kind of like I don't want to say it's a gimmick, but it's like a list. Like you have to go to all 50 if you're going to do 30 cities you're not trying to go to 30 specific cities, how do you choose which ones to go to? Well, you might be able to like identify two thirds of them just because you know, okay, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to LA. I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm going to do something there. But obviously like there's lots of other, other great places out there. Um, so for me it was like, where are my readers? And that's, that's the critical factor. That's how I decide, you know, where it is I'm going to, I'm going to go. And so pretty much doing that from the beginning. And it's been interesting because I have definitely seen this this trend of how like sometimes some smaller cities, if the people there really kind of have a vision for the the event and they do a good job in terms of sharing it and, and building like local interest, I'm going to actually have a better turnout and more engagement there than I am in a, in a bigger city where it's, you know, it's, I don't want to say nobody cares, but it's just there's no ownership of it. So having like a local ownership has been really important in terms of, you know, which events are, are better than others.
2: Absolutely. And then you also have your own big event that you do, World mm-hmm. Domination Summit, once yep. a year, and that feels like was that an extension of these meetups that you were doing all over the country? Yep. Of like, why exactly. don't we bring everybody to our own party?
1: That's exactly it. That's a, that's 100% it. Yeah, uh, it was. Wow, it's cool to, to like you know hang out with these folks from Kansas or these folks from San Antonio or wherever. But wouldn't it be great if um, you know? Because a lot a lot of my people. They're also introverted or sensitive. I don't mean to stereotype because there's there's all kinds of people in the community. But a lot of people do feel like they're doing something that's a little bit different or they feel like maybe they they don't have the support they need. Uh, Maybe maybe their family doesn't even understand, you know, what it is they're, they're doing or what their goal is. And so one of the values that's been important is like, how can we connect those people to one another? so that they they feel supported. And so wouldn't it be great if it's not just people from this one area, but people from all over the place who could come together. And that was, you know, I mean, I went on that 50 state book tour and I said, you know, every stop along the way, I'm like, hey, next summer we're doing this event. It's called the World Domination Summit. And I'd love for you to come. And we really didn't know like a whole lot more than just that. right? Like, I, had dates. <laughs> I mean, I had a couple of things, but like that, we had to figure it out just like just like publishing books or just like starting a podcast. Like there's there's a way to figure these things out. It's not that, that complicated, but you don't always know until you kind of go down that, that road.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that's important to know is that so many people think, and there's this stereotype about writing as a solitary activity. And the mm-hmm. thing about your story that's so inspiring is that it has built this enormous community. And if these books didn't exist, all these people wouldn't necessarily be meeting in person, which is something that you don't normally associate with writing in books.
1: Yeah. Well, for me, I think it's one of the greatest things. I mean, it is honestly one of the things that makes me happy. And I, I do, I, I am a solitary writer as well. Like, I think like there's still that component, like you have to, you know, be able to go into your cave or whatever and, and create and, and um, that's important, but I guess for me as well, I do value the connection that comes from writing and publishing something. And I, I think this is like an artistic choice. Like I respect people who are like, I just want to make art, I want to make it on my own terms, and I don't care, you know, who likes it or whatever. Like that's that's fine, that's their choice. You know, for me, I, it's it's like, well, I do want to make something that's valuable. It has to be, you know, personal and pertinent to me. I'm not trying to sell out or be overly commercial. commercial. But at the same time, like I actually want to reach people. I actually want to do want to make a difference in in people's lives, you know, not everyone's life, but whoever it is that's going to connect with it. So, I mean, I, I kind of see it as, as a little bit of both, like, you know, what, how can I do something that is, that is true to myself, but is also, you know, hopefully going to go beyond myself and create that, that community that you mentioned.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing too, is that when you have done these meetups it was really fun to be at one of the ones for side hustle school Mm. in Mm. la because somebody who Mm. had been at your previous la meetup a few months before announced that she had since put together and launched a podcast because she was inspired by that right so i imagine you have stories like that that happen all the time as you're meeting people all over the country
1: yes and i would say truthfully that is my number one motivation like getting emails from people or hearing stories like that of different projects that they've done and I, I try to not take credit for it because obviously those people have done the work, you know, like they're the ones who, who do that. So but I, I'm very happy to be like this small little like connector piece or amplifier to it or maybe just showing people like, hey, this is possible. Like you're the one who has to go and do it. But, you know, yes, it is possible. Go for it. You know, so, yes.
2: The other thing I would like people listening to know is. Uh, is something that you shared at that meetup, which is that I had this vision of you kind of batch recording the Side Hustle School podcast <laughs> oh, yeah, in long right. things and then editing. I did not know. Will you no. tell them about how this mm-hmm. works? Because I think it's amazing. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So the show goes out every day, every single day, um, seven days a week, 365 episodes last year. And, you know, it's going to be the same this year. And I, I do very limited batch recording. So for the most part, I am, I'm actually recording the show every day. I would say, you know, five days a week at least I'm recording. Uh, sometimes I'll do two episodes, you know, to work a little bit ahead. I have a I have a runway of about right now. I think it's maybe 12 episodes. So we try to be like 10 to 14 days ahead, just because of like what's involved in terms of the production team. And I'm not the only person working on the show, so I want to be cognizant of cognizant of them and respectful of their time because like they're not like me. I don't expect them to work Sundays and you know all that kind of stuff. And also just for my own sanity of not like wanting to go to bed at night and wondering like what the episode is for tomorrow. But uh, for the most part, it is like a a real time kind of thing. And uh, podcasting was new to me last year, just like books were new to me when I started this journey. And I guess at first I thought it would be good to like batch record. Like it would actually be good to be like, you know, two to three days a month. I go into like a studio and those are really long days. But then like I have all the episodes for the whole month or whatever. But I think the, the problem there is like, like there's, some, there's some obvious advantages to that, but I think the disadvantage is that you lose, or at least I feel like I would lose the sense of, of real time discoverability or the real time conversation that's happening, you know, with people. And so, yeah, I've just kind of made it part of my routine, like every single day for the most part, I'm, I'm recording, you know, an episode, then I'm the next day I'm recording whatever comes after that and, and so on.
2: How? you fitting all of this into your routine because (laughs) you've got world domination summit you're writing a book every 18 months you're going out and meeting people you're traveling on what i take as a weekly basis and you're recording a podcast almost every single day how does that work
1: you know caroline the greatest productivity hack people always like how do you like you know do all this kind of stuff honestly i believe personally the greatest productivity hack is to love what you do and to find a way to like craft your life around things that you believe in and care about and that you're willing to invest in, and then you know if you do that, like it doesn't mean you know you're not going to be stressed out at times. It doesn't mean that you're not going to make mistakes or fall behind or like all those things. But I, I really think if you you have this life mission that you decide for yourself, like here are the goals that that I'm going to work toward because they align with the values that I've set, and I can see there's there's some kind of incentive or reward to it. And I can see like, there's a connection between what I do and and what matters and all that, that kind of stuff. I feel like that, that is the greatest thing that will keep you going basically. And like, you can always learn more tips or hacks or like, you know, here's how you you organize your, your to-do list or whatever. But I feel like that stuff is marginal. That stuff is like your 10%, you know, improvements, which are good, but you know, to get the 50%, if if you believe in something, then it's almost like you, you, you want to spend time on it. It's not like you want to limit your time. You want to, to give everything you can to it because it's important to you.
2: I couldn't agree more. I think that is possibly the best advice you could give. And I hope everybody mm-hmm. takes that in and thinks about, as you're thinking about writing a book, make sure you love it that much because you're going to have to mm-hmm. give yeah. a lot of your life to it in order to publish it, but it's absolutely right. worth it.
1: Right. You know, I have a I have this bad habit. I'm trying to work on it for years. I, I I thought since for me book book writing was like I wanted to write books. I love books. Like I said, I assumed, you know, a terrible assumption. I assumed that everybody wants to write a book, you <laughs> know, or or everybody should write a book, you know, and, and that's not the case, right? There are lots of people that. Like they, they think they want to write a book, but they don't really want to. And so I had this bad habit of like trying to talk people into writing books. <laughs> and so I have, I've learned like now when people ask me for advice or my experience or whatever, like my successes, mistakes, failures, et cetera, I'm more than happy to share But I'm much less of an evangelist, right? I'm much less of a like, Hey, you should write a book, you know? So, I mean, I understand like, you know, the listeners here, most of them do want to write books and that's great. So if you do, nobody should ever, you know, tell you, you shouldn't. I mean, there is, there's lots of different pathways now. It's, you know, Publishers are still assigning authors like every single day. It's not like that's completely changed the way that some people say. Um, But you have to want it. You have to really want it. And if you want it, then great. If not, do something else.
2: Yeah, you deserve to do whatever you love doing. And if that's not writing books, that's okay too. Right.
1: (laughs) Right. Exactly. It took me like five years of, you know, being an author to learn that. But yes.
2: (laughs) Well, it takes as long as it takes, you know, it takes a certain amount of time to write a book. It takes time. I feel the same way because I love writing. So I just assume everyone else will love it. But I have also surrounded myself with people who love writing. So Mm -hmm. then that just reinforces that belief. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you so much for coming on, Chris. It's been amazing speaking to you. And We will have links to all of your books and your site and your podcast in the show notes so that everybody can continue to learn from your amazing example.
1: Awesome. That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for the conversation. I will go and check out those show notes too.
2: I want to take a moment after the first part of our episode before moving on to our second interview to recommend a book that you can use with your free trial of Audible at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash Audible. You'll be pleased to know if you're a listener of Chris Gillabo's podcast, Side Hustle School, that his book, Side Hustle, available on Audible, is narrated by the author. I don't know if I could imagine anyone else narrating that book, having listened to him on his show um, and finding his voice such a familiar part of the concepts that he's sharing. So if you want to go further from the interview you've just heard with Chris Gillabo, or you are a lover of his podcast, you'll be pleased to know that you can listen to Chris Read Sud hustle and you can try it out with your free trial at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible okay let's get back to the show tom hodgkinson founded the idler in 1993 and went on to join the guardian newspaper as a columnist and head of editorial development then in 2002 tom quit the commercial world and retired to a farmhouse on the coast of north devon to write books his first book, How to Be Idle, was a global bestseller and was followed by How to Be Free, The Idle Parent, and Brave Old World. He has also co-written the book of Idle Pleasures with Dan Kieran, who later went on to launch the crowdfunding publishing platform Unbound, as well as the Ukulele Handbook, which he wrote with Gavin PretterPenny. He has published a number of pamphlets, including his own, We Want Everyone: An Attack on Facebook, and Dr. Matthew Green's History of the London Coffee House. Tom also published Gwyn's Grammar in an edition of 100, which caught the eye of Random House, who bought out a commercial edition. This astonished everyone by spending five months on the Sunday Times top 10 and selling over 50,000 copies. The follow-up, Gwyn's Latin, was also a top 10 bestseller. In 2014, Tom returned to London to launch and develop the Idler Academy, both in the real world and online. And then in 2016, he relaunched the Idler as a print quarterly. His latest book, Business for Bohemians, came out in 2016 and was released in paperback in early 2018. Now, I have been a lover of Tom Hodgkinson's work back since How to Be Idle. I remember reading this um, about 10 years ago when I worked at BookSoup in Los Angeles. So I have been carrying um, Tom Hodgkinson's philosophies with me for quite some time. So it was it was very exciting to get to speak to him directly and to see that both of our paths have kind of transformed over the course of his career writing books back from How to Be Heidel when I was really desperate to get out of sort of the strictures of commercial America and and the things that you know it really suited me in um, my late 20s early 30s to read that book and now you know quite a few years later um it's very exciting to see Business for Bohemians, which gives an education to creative people about how to benefit from business practices and allow you to really take control of your creative career, whether you're a writer or in any other creative field, and to benefit from this information, which is often just provided to people in more conventional careers. And that we as creative people have a tendency to, you know, kind of look down on practical business advice, which does in fact have the power to allow you to continue doing your creative career more effectively. So I'm thrilled to have Tom Hodgkinson on to talk about his own journey with this process and how learning these business tricks have allowed him to continue in his creative pursuits. And I know you all will learn a lot from this conversation. So here we go with Tom Hodgkinson. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for coming on.
3: Hi, Caroline. Thanks for having me.
2: So I was really excited to dive into Business for Bohemians because I have been a long time reader of your books. And I think they've all hit me like at exactly the right point in my life. Like I read How to Be Idle during a sort of type A crisis disaster. And so that was extremely helpful and, and changed everything. And now I think that Business for Bohemians is like at exactly the right time for people to be reading it. In particular, I was delighted with the chapter, learn to love the spreadsheet. And I wondered, um, for those listening, Tom has written a lot about, you know, having a less stressful and overwhelming life and actually learning to have fun with what you're doing. And now there's there's business for Bohemians, for anyone who's trying to build the business side of writing and a creative life to learn that actually you can have a sensible and sustainable life and you don't have to starve to death in a garret. So thank you for that.
3: My pleasure. It's, it's based on, you know, uh, my own horrific experiences in this area. So ho- hopefully I can help people to avoid making the mistakes that I made.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I they were, I mean, I have to say, I, I could feel your sort of frustration with certain aspects of, of the business life. And one of the things that I thought was really wonderful was that everyone always has this message that writing books is incredibly impractical, and oh, you shouldn't write a book, or why would you want to be a writer when you could do something sensible? And your discussion on the whole thing was like, why can't I go back to writing books? It was so much easier. So (laughs) I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the transition between writing the books that you've written and then deciding to start a physical brick-and-mortar business for the Idler Academy.
3: Well, sure. I started writing books for a living, I guess, in around 2004, And at the time, I was living in a rented farmhouse in North Devon in the middle of nowhere in the countryside near the sea with three small children and a small vegetable garden and and chickens and we baked bread. And I worked every morning for about four hours. Um, And I was lucky enough to be able to make a living out of these books. And I wrote three or four books uh, from the farmhouse. And that was really a sort of the ideal life, I guess. But something changed in around 2008. As we all know, there was the financial crash um, caused by America.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Um, we'll take that. That's fair.
3: (laughs) And um, the income from stuff like journalism and book writing kind of disappeared, you know. Um, And it wasn't just me. It was a common thing across the industry, if you want to call it that. But writers who'd been... I would say sort of, you know, medium people like me. I mean, there's always going to be top people who are very successful and there are going to be people who are unsuccessful. But I was in that kind of middle class of writers and, you know, able to sell quite well, um, able to find lots of readers and, and make a, really a reasonable living. And journalism also before 2008 was reasonably well paid and I was doing a lot of journalism on top of the books. Um but that re- that really started to change. That, that, so that was one thing. Um, so we were sort of looking around to do something a bit different uh, to, to create some extra income, I guess. Uh, I was also finding it difficult to get a sort of commission for my fifth or sixth book, I think. Um, uh, I don't know if i would sort of run out of ideas. So uh, this was something that my wife and I have been sort of thinking about for years. You know, it's, it's actually a beautiful idea to create a an educational centre, a cafe, a bookshop. A place where you can run your own events and run your own courses in London. And that was the vision, that was the dream. And a couple of, well, a few years before that, uh, we'd spent the summer going around festivals in the UK, uh, setting up tents, teaching, running events, putting on gigs and bands, um, you know, and we'd really, and, and we had a small bookshop in the tent. We'd really enjoyed that. And we'd had lots of people coming to see lectures about quite obscure subjects greek philosophy aldous huxley um debates about political debates about supermarkets or whatever it might be so we thought well wouldn't it be great to uh do this full time you know open open our own place our our own bookshop our own cafe and our own event venue where people could come and meet and we said you know anarchist will meet hedge fund manager (laughs) this coffee house. And it'll be something like an 18th century coffee house, the 18th century coffee house of London, where people will go and talk about the stock prices, but they'd also talk about literature and art and so on. Um, A a reaction against the Starbucks, where everyone's isolated on their own. the idea of a a really old-fashioned coffee house um, and centre of learning bookshop, you know. Uh, And and that's what we do. we were very excited by that idea. Um, And uh, we, we threw ourselves into this um, we remortgaged our, our house, uh, raised some money, borrowed some money from the bank, uh, raised a bit of money from friends and family, and um, you know, I was suddenly had to become a businessman. And it, in order to realise this vision, um, I had to very very quickly uh, and not always successfully acquaint myself to, acquaint myself with the basics of business. You know, and I started to realise well, there's a reason why. People go to Harvard Business School for one, two, three years and just study business and nothing else all day, every day. Um, it doesn't necessarily come easily and certainly not to a creative person. I mean, I guess about managed, um, OK, as a freelancer, uh, you know, as a writer, you get paid twice a year. I'm just about managed to produce accounts once a year and pay my taxes. Um, but running a business, paying staff, paying rent and rates, uh, buying stock, running a till, these were all completely new things to me. And that's really what the book's about. It's about what I learned over those five years um, of keeping the shop open and uh, the suffering that was involved. Um, for example, you know, uh, f- finding and managing staff, it, that's not so easy. We, we, we just employed people who happened to be sort of hanging around with the children and friends or something, um, but they weren't necessarily the right people. Um, as time went on, we, we selected the people we were going to work with much more carefully. Things like dealing with the bank. Um, And as you mentioned, spreadsheets. I mean, right from the the start, I had to teach myself how to do what's called a cash flow forecast. And all this apparently quite boring stuff, you know. um, And here I am. I've I've written a book called How to Be Idle, How to Be Free. They're kind of anarchic self-help guides for the free-spirited. And they're quite literary. Um, And, you know, I've been embracing bohemianism as much as I could. and, And also encouraging other people to embrace bohemianism against um you know money earning and competitive a competitive life though money earning is very important because no one wants to be poor and so and then here i was uh you know i felt like i was sort of wearing a top hat um or, you know, <laughs> like a big fat cigar and um you know there, there were a lot there were a lot of lessons to be learned but it, so i thought it was worth, to, worth putting them all down into a book because you know, there are, I think there are a lot of people who, who would like to be autonomous, to be free, um, to be their own boss um, and to use their own creativity to make a living. And uh, but it's just not that easy, you know. Um, no. And to, it's really it's not. And people say, oh, well, will just go on Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, OK, they don't work. You know, um, Twitter has never sold anything for us at all. Uh, Facebook very rarely. Um, what does work? Um in our case, is building up a email mailing list and communicating with people that way. So that's for example, one of the tips in the book. It's a very common aspiration. Why is Uber so successful? Because Uber has successfully, in my view, exploited that desire to uh, not have a job if if you like, or you know to, to 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 quit to set your own hours um and to work when when you when when you want to. Um that's a wonderful aspiration. I mean, I remember reading years ago. Walmart, I think, in the states did a um a survey of their workers and asked them what they would really like to be doing um, and a huge proportion said they would either like to be re- uh, running their own small holding i.e. being a small farmer of some kind or running their own shop um why because they those those things apparently give you control over your own life, and that's what the idler my magazine my books and and this book is all about um but you know it ain't easy
2: no. And I think that's something that was really, I think on the surface, you could think, oh, this book is so different than the others. But I think it it isn't in that in order to be free, in order to have, you know, your own independent life, you need to learn these skills. Because if you, and I think you say this pretty explicitly in the book, if you Open a business that sounds really wonderful, like the bookshop. I'm like, I'm ready to start one myself. With your description, um, that's always been. Running a bookshop is like something I've had to actively restrain myself from doing for probably 15 years.
3: Well, um, you're, you're you're lucky to have restrained yourself. It's, um,
2: <laughs> it's, well, only, it's quite tough. I know. It's just. It's right there. It just sounds so good. But the the thought is that you know, without skills like the ones you're talking about, creative people won't be able to maintain those projects. And then you'll just have to go back to working for someone else. And it'll be that much more intolerable because you've had a bit of time away. And I think <laughs> once you get away from working for someone else, it's very, very hard to go back. Yeah. And so learning these skills is not really the antithesis of, of being idle and free. It's actually the, the the life support that will sustain that possibility.
3: Yeah, that's right. Because, I mean, unless you've got some sort of... um unearned income from something or other which 99% of people in the world do not then obviously you have to earn a living and you've got to be sensible about these things um, and and not scared and not hide from them Um, not hide from the tax people and uh, budget and you know be frugal and stuff like that well that's uh, these are all good things and they're they're all in support of independence or whatever you want to call it autonomy or you know self-sufficiency self-reliance whichever one kind of wants you know um yeah so it's not being the business is. i mean i actually i realized you know right from when we started the idler magazine um which was in 1993 a long time ago um if i wanted to get this thing out there then you know i had to engage with the business of magazine publishing um which I, i'm doing again now because we relaunched the magazine about two years ago so and, and, be, uh, and be very business-minded but i remember you know in, in the um you got to, you, uh, Our first mistake was the name of the shop, as far as staff were concerned, the Idler Academy. Um, <laughs> so so our, our, our beautiful, intelligent, young and charming staff, um, who kind of toddled along and uh, came to work there, um, they really thought that they were going to be sort of reclining on a chaise longue in the window um, and, uh, you know, smoking cigars and um, talking about Oscar Wilde uh, with their friends. When in, in fact, it's quite hard work dealing with customers and you have to be on time and so on. So there was a little disconnect there in um, the bohemianism of the atmosphere and the fact that I did not want the staff to be idle at all. <laughs> and then the staff were, were like, you know, oh, you know, he's such like a hypocrite. It's called the Idle Academy. Well, we have to work really hard here.
2: Yeah, I think that's the thing is it's difficult when you imagine something like the the cafe that you you know you were envisioning and it seems like a very wonderful place to be as a patron but it's a very different thing to be there as sort of the proprietor and the creator and and that experience yeah. is entirely different it's like you it know the people behind the scenes at the theater aren't like casually watching the play they, <laughs> they have a lot to do and yeah, they do. you're more like the backstage staff than you are you know the the people in the audience.
3: Yeah. And it's also, I'm um, dealing with the general public is not, not so easy. Um, no, that's, and, a, uh, that's a generous way of putting it. If, if, any, uh, and, and always being a boss. So, um, if anyone's seen the office, um, <laughs> if anyone has seen faulty towers, um, and cross those two characters together. And, um, and that was me, you know, sort of trying to be <laughs> try trying, trying to be sort of, uh, charming and, and nice to customers. Um, one example I talk about in the book is that a couple came in at the end of the day on a Sunday. Um, I think my wife and I had already been bickering in the basement, um, and we'd enlisted my son to help, uh, who was about eight or nine, uh, in the shop, and we'd all been sort of arguing. Uh, I think someone had spilled a coffee or something like that. And then at the end of the day, a couple came in and uh, and sat down, and you know I, I went over and uh, took their order in a, in a sort of suitably obsequious way um thinking inside um have they not read my books did they not realize that i'm a sort of best-selling author uh who's had global success you know um <laughs> and i thought sort of kneeling beside them yes no, no problem two coffees i'll be right with you um and then we went went off to make these coffees uh we didn't have a coffee machine we had we had a sort of just a filter system which apparently makes better coffee anyway i don't know I'd read a piece about it, and and oh, the uh, pour
2: over, the pour over, that pour... takes forever.
3: Exactly, we were all about the pour over because I thought that was the idler coffee, you know, and it was supposed to be very good. Um, it does take a long time, and it's not always that hot. Okay, so um, I carried the copies over to them, and then um, put them down. I mean, it probably took about half an hour, and then uh, and then they said, "Look, this, this coffee is cold," and I said, "Well, it's it's not that it's." It's not exactly cold. I mean, I know it's not super hot, but it's actually supposed to be like that. It's pour over coffee. In fact, there was a piece about it in the newspaper last week. Um, and it's really the latest thing, and that's what we do here. So, you know, in other words, I, I just told them to kind of stuff it. Um, <laughs> they they were wrong, and the customer is always wrong. Um, and then they came to pay, and... Um, I said, that's five pounds, please, for your two coffees. Um, Which is really reasonable, and- actually,
2: for pour over, I must say. <laughs> yeah.
3: Thank you. Well, like, you know, well I'm we in start-
2: Los Angeles where it's like it could yeah. be as much as $8, you know.
3: No, really? Well, I wish we charged that. Maybe we would have done a lot better. <laughs> I-, I, talk about, I talk about pricing in the book, actually. Pricing is, de- is a very, very difficult thing to get right because um, particularly creative people tend to underprice themselves and the yes. stuff they do. Um, you know, Starbucks just charged a lot of money right from day one. Um, and somehow you know you charge more, and people think it's worth that. It's a kind of psychological thing. So anyway, um, but yeah, we agonised about pricing, and they so they paid their five pounds for the two coffees, and uh, and I said, well, sorry, it was I'm sorry you're disappointed. Um, you know, here's a badge, and we have no. What do you call them in, in the states? Pins. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, like a, a little sign, and we had uh, a snail. So we had these badges made or pins made with a snail on them. Um, and I gave them a couple of these badges off. They went anyway. Um, the next day, you know, we got a, a review, one of those reviews. Those all off- reviews on not TripAdvisor, but some similar thing
2: or, like Yelp um, or something,
3: something like that. And, um, I was like, oh, we got a review. <laughs> We'd only been open two weeks. And, uh, anyway, it was not a good review. And it was obviously by these people, the people who I'd, who had complained about the cold coffee. And they said, um, this is an incredibly ho- horrible, uncomfortable place. The chairs were uh, spiky or something. Um, and th- th- the manager was a pretentious lunatic, uh, i.e. me, um, who had, um, w- when they started to complain about their cold coffee, treated them to a long lecture about how pour-over coffee was the latest thing. And when they asked for their money back, gave them a badge with a picture of a snail on it. What a lunatic. <laughs> oh, no. And that's basically how we started, and I was like, "Oh God, I'm not sure if I'm really the right person to be managing a coffee shop in that case.
2: Well the funny thing is is that I mean, I would say that the majority of coffee shops in Los Angeles now are very particular about the way they pour it, and you kind of take it or you leave it like there's one in there's one I know well in l a um where if you go up and you try to modify anything, they look at you like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and it's just sort of understood <laughs> that you take it or you don't get your coffee. So it may have been, like maybe that. you that, needed that, that, to that, dial that it that up. Did. Yeah, maybe you should have dialed it up even more. Yeah, and then you would have, up even more. right, you would have just would have fit red- in with everybody else. It's like third wave coffee would be like, what do you mean you want it boiling? It's going to ruin the flavor.
3: <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's what we were taught by mum's coffee house. Yeah, you, know, you have to let the co- the water cool down because you know hot water is going to destroy the coffee. Yeah, I think we should be much more confident about it. And you, you do get those pubs and restaurants in London which become quite popular because the proprietor is so rude.
2: Yes. So maybe uh, it's just and, a marketing uh, thing. Yeah. I don't know.
3: So, so this conversation six years ago. But anyway, so we we. we, we <laughs> But we struggled on for about. I mean, in many ways, it was it was a great success. You know, I mean, we had some wonderful events, and um, we certainly got talked about a lot and written about. Um, and we cert- we massively increased our kind of list of customers. But we closed it after five years. That the, the rent, the, the land, uh, our original landlord, who was great, um, sold it to a new landlord. who put the, the rent up, um, you know, probably to market rates, but it was still a lot more than we were paying. And um, we decided to. Uh, knock it on the head at that point and i thought well we'll do we'll we'll do our events in other people's venues people who, who are actually good at this or enjoy it you know um running a cafe and it has been it has been a great relief uh they're, they're a beautiful idea
2: yes it's a shame i'm really actually sad that it, it corresponds with the exact period of time in which i have not been in london recently and i was like oh i've just missed it
3: <laughs> well yeah we, we got loads of um our kind of you know uh, global fans coming to visit us which is lovely you know, so people would make it, put it on their list of places to go to when they were doing their London trip. Um, but what we do now is we 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 put on a lot of events, so people can come and see us at those. Instead, we have a, a monthly dinner, uh, we put on parties, we're doing various festivals um, in London and elsewhere. That that's that's actually a better way for us. Um, and we've uh, business-wise, um, I'd really like to pass this on because I think it's really important for small people. Um you should not be competing digitally uh with the likes of facebook um in fact we we've got one of the people involved in the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal coming to an event tonight
0: really we just
3: we record... yeah he's he we went to see Christopher Wiley last week live he's in london right now um and the guy who interviewed him is coming to talk to our readers tomorrow t- tonight um oh, I'm so and something envious. i've been sort of <laughs> it's a lot going on um and there's you know I was sort of onto to this a while ago that um, for small people it, it's crazy to try to compete for advertising. Now Silicon Valley's done a, a, a big disservice to creative people by giving all the stuff away for free. So they called it the sharing economy, although they don't share the the um, billions of profits out back to the, to the um, people who, who give their stuff for free. So if that's something like YouTube or you know facebook Twitter even we, yeah. we all work for nothing for these companies we 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 put all our pour our creativity into them and they they give us nothing in fact, they take all our data and information and as we know in quite sophisticated ways, then resell that elsewhere either to political parties uh, looking to win elections or or to businesses looking to find new customers you know um, that's why Facebook's such a brilliant business because um Everybody wants to implement someone else, you know, um, either to vote or to, to buy something. Um, and Facebook is an incredibly sort of effective way to do that. Um, more effective than its predecessor, which was advertising in newspapers. Anyway, yes. so where does that leave the, the small person? Well, the small person ha- really ha- you have to, I think we all as individuals have to realise that we, we should be paying um, creative people. And as creative people, we should charge money for what we do. Um and that's at the basis of this book really is that um and we should charge good prices because uh you're you're extremely unlikely to make any sort of a living on by putting your stuff on YouTube. Even if you do get a million views, you only get a, a few hundred dollars. Um so what we've been looking at with the idler is uh we relaunched eighteen months ago or twenty months ago as a print magazine. We have a digital version as well. And we can sell subscriptions, you know, um and people give us money, we make, it sounds old-fashioned, but we make something and people buy it. Um, and the best thing of all, with, a, a, a you know, so, a, something that's very highly curated like The Idler, which has an atmosphere and it's a club that people want to be part of, you, you can charge a subscription because people really enjoy subscribing to magazines and clubs and newsletters and so on, like I'm a New Yorker subscriber, I'm an Atlantic subscriber. Some of these magazines are, you know, actually doing very well. Then Alongside that, we have another business, which is online courses. Um, we now have 35 or 40 of these. So, for example, we've just recorded one with Andrew Keane. who's also based in, uh, in California. He's a, an Internet critic. Um, and his new book is called How to Fix the Future. So we've constructed a video course about how people can sort of regain the power, the power that we've given away to the big tech companies. Um, in return for free stuff, for free services like Facebook?
0: Um, how can
3: we take that back? And, and part of this process we, we discussed in the course, which we're going to charge money for, is to is, is, is to to pay and to be paid um, for your creativity. And so we, we have a, a second subscription level where people can subscribe to these online courses. So although we do sell them like a book, there's something called Creative Live in the States, which is a little similar, and also Skillshare.com. Yes. um you can subscribe to these are i mean our courses are different they're, they're more curated and they're they're, they're quirkier they they're, they're they're sort of wittier and they're quite english and you know odd um <laughs> but you know, and they're fun you can do you can learn ukulele you can learn harmonica you can learn about ancient philosophy you can learn about the history of london you can learn about you can learn Latin, um, you can learn about the history of, of, of British buildings and architecture. They're all done with writers and top experts in their fields on videos and that they're they're quite quirky, but really good information and um but you know, people pay for them and that's that's turning into sort of quite a good business. So um people will subscribe, they pay us annually. And it might sound boring and technical, uh but what's really good is recurring revenue. <laughs> um So so you you sort of entice people with a good offer in year one. um, And then you hope that they'll stay with you for many, many years after that um, without you having to do an enormous amount of work to to hang on to them, apart from obviously to keep up your, your product.
2: No, I think it's an important thing. No, absolutely. Because I think the reason that most people want to write books is to communicate with other people and to share ideas that they think are important. And this is a way to use a different platform that people value and to help them to learn something i mean a a good digital course is sort of like a multimedia book in many ways and that's
3: right that 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 was our idea it's you know it's like a sort of book version of um it's like a video version of the book we have lots of notes and you can you can ask questions to the the teacher or to us in the forum um and you can also you know meet your other students i mean and sometimes we do we do we just done a psychotherapy one and we got you know not huge numbers, a handful of people live online for an hour or so with the tutor answering questions, um, and those questions stay up there in the forum so people can read them later. It's a bit like an AMA on Reddit or something like that. Yeah. So there's all sorts of you know so we're not kind of uh, again you know, I, I think you shouldn't be a, against technology, um, but there are ways of getting it back into your own hands. I, I mentioned the mailing list as well. I think for all authors that's a, a great idea. Um, as long as you keep it reg- do it regularly. Like mine is weekly, but authors can do it monthly. You know, if I had a, a favourite author, let's say Jeff Dyer, who's a great writer, he lives in LA, and he has a mailing list, um, and he sent me a, a sort of witty newsletter once a month for free, well, you're going to be really inclined to buy his next book when it comes out. Um, so I think that's a good sort of marketing tip for um, for writers. And yeah, there might well be some kind of subscription um service that you could offer i don't know whether it works or not but there's something called patreon which you may well be aware of yes um where you sort of uh, I, I think the, the problem with Patreon is that i think you, you know you sort of commit to writing an essay every week or something like that and you get two customers so you, but you still have to write the essay
2: right exactly <laughs> so You have I to
3: write, write write an essay for that. <laughs> um but i think it, you know that could work for some people i mean i'm a, I'm a little um skeptical just because it's another platform um right. uh, but then you know i think etsy is a good thing for creative people um they only i think well certainly when they started they, they took one percent which seems fair when you think that uber take 25 or 30 percent of every transaction you know i think these big platforms should be taking one percent and that's that's fair you know um because they don't really have to do anything uh, except for like manage the platform um so Etsy can be a, a way of a really good way of learning learning business stuff and you know trying to sell stuff online and, and, and Patreon providers. But also, you know, because I think that the problem with publishing the is publishing difficult for people because um uh, individual publishers today um do not actually have a list of the names and addresses and email addresses of their of their of their customers because they buy them from Amazon or they buy them in a bookshop. You know, if you could somehow Uh, manage to do some direct sales to your customers and not only is that more fun and they enjoy it because they're supporting you directly you also have uh, their information so you can communicate with them you can put them on a mailing list or whatever it is um rather than just sort of throwing a book into the bookshops and hoping that someone will buy it
2: yeah that's hard i think this also i mean all of these concepts it's interesting to me because there has been this attitude up to this point, I think, for creative people where business seems sort of dirty or it's like you see it as, oh, all of that business stuff. I went into creative fields because I didn't want to do that kind of thing. But I think the thing that I liked about your book was that it was reframing that. And to an extent, I think – Business skills are just business skills. They're fairly neutral. And we tend to associate, you know, large corporations that have got them really well down as sort of exploitative. But I don't think it's because they know business. It's it's just because what they're choosing to do with that knowledge. And if creative people really took that knowledge on, um, they don't need to go get an MBA like you talked about for three years. But I think starting simply with your book and then reading further, as you suggest, mm-hmm. is really important because if you can't support yourself, and you're not willing to get paid well for what you do. It's very yeah. hard to continue doing it.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I think we should put, we should start this at the idle. You know, we need to be creating um, uh, meetups for people so that you know, um, because it's quite isolating being an author. You don't really know what's going on. So you you know, to have a sort of regular uh, meetup in in real life um, or online or both, uh, where authors and other creative people, musicians. Um, you know sort of fight back and you know t- t- take some control over stuff and, and and you know if you were i don't know like ebooks for example um Amazon says you know publish your ebook with us but they put they put the price so low that you're never going to make any money out of it or rarely you know they, they they point to two or three examples of people who've done well um, but wouldn't it be great to have a, some kind of support group where you could meet people who've actually tried out these things and you know actually for me it was much better this is few years ago with the idler um i i i it stopped being a magazine and it became a book it was a book a, a collection of essays that we published once a year and they were quite long essays um on political subjects idling philosophy or whatever it might be
2: and the books are really beautiful i have a few of them uh,
3: the, oh really oh great oh that's lovely thank you yeah and we, we, we put quite a high price on those i think I, I might have overpriced it but the first one was 1899 um pounds, pounds sterling and uh you know, we sold about three or 4,000 copies of that through bookshops, which is terrific. Um, if if you if you sell something to, for very little, you have to sell a lot of it um, to make any money. You know, we made this mistake with uh, merchandising and T-shirts. We've always had T-shirts until someone said, Tom, why are you bothering with T-shirts? Because you sell like one T-shirt a month. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and you've got a huge box of unsold T-shirts in the corner of your office. Um, I don't think you've got quite enough customers, you know, um, to be doing this. And so we just stopped, and that's been great. Hopefully, we'll we'll bring it back in a year or two when we've built up our sort of basic uh, fan base. Um, But, you know, someone – I hadn't really thought that through, you know. um, And so if you're – Amazon, you know, Amazon love cheap prices. They want you to sell everything for as little as possible because then they sell more. They don't care if you only sell five and, and people pay 79 cents and your portion is 50% and you get like $2.50 for writing a book, which is ridiculous, you know, oh. or whatever it might be. So um, things like that, you know, uh, but actually maybe you, your friends would all buy 100 copies of a book and you can charge £25 and you can do a lovely hardback and you can um, do a course and an event. and you know, to sort of think a bit more creatively like that uh, about the income streams for a writer um, and, uh, and, and to put, put your prices as high as you can bear. But as you say, that that's difficult stuff to learn because, to, uh, you know, as creative people you sort of probably tend to be a bit more democratic and not particularly greedy. Um, so, I mean, I found it quite hurtful when we, at the shop, we put on an event and then people would say, oh, I can't afford, you know, £25 or whatever. You know, can you do me a cheaper rate? And I was like, I just got angry and I was like, well, I, I can't afford You know, I, I love your courses. They're brilliant. You know, I love everything you do, but I can't afford £25. Is there any chance of doing a cheaper one? Because, you know, I know you want to reach out to lots of people. Um, and I was like, well, that's like ringing up, um, you know, Rolls Royce and saying, you know, I, I love your cars. They're absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I can't afford one. I was just wondering if I could have one for half price. Right. So you've got to be strong about your about your pricing is what I'm saying. And also I think we need to kind of, as you're doing, you know, um, get, get, get this information out there and make people feel, uh, that they're not alone um, with these struggles and 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 help each other but uh, yeah as you say the, the main thing probably is to realize that um, commerce is not a dirty word we think it's a dirty word because we, we associate it with Wall Street um, and um, uh, Enron or you know whatever it might be uh, but they're not really business people they're sort of financiers they're, they're sort of they're making money out of other people's work you know if you buy and sell oil or something I don't actually really call that business. What I call business is the guy who's opened the shop, is buying stuff, selling stuff. That actually is creative, um, and so the creative person and the small business person have a very, or the entrepreneur have a very, very similar mindset, which is different from the mindset of the person who joins a, a large company or um, uh, goes into, you know, Wall Street or becomes a, the chief of a big pharma company or something like that. So I think that this noble, noble um, small shopkeeper class and musicians journalists small shopkeepers creative people people who make and sell things on a smaller level but who also want to grow um have a lot in common with each other we need to help each other and this book is for those people
2: definitely because i don't think we lose by sort of i mean i don't think we win by putting our fingers in our ears and saying la 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 i don't like that stuff i mean i i have to say in i have created um my husband is a bit horrified by my level of love for the spreadsheet at this point, where <laughs> I even use it. I mean, you can you can people make them look quite beautiful. You think I'm crazy, yeah. but you can actually <laughs> fill them. If you use Google Sheets or something like that, you can fill them yeah. with colors and, and make them all pretty. And I mean, I will use them even for things like plotting out my books. I know that sounds nuts, but like, oh, look. Chapter one. Here's this character. He hasn't ever appeared again in the book. When I blot out the whole thing, maybe we don't need that character. This can all be done with a spreadsheet, and it's quite creative. So,
3: well, that's a very beautiful thought. Um, I suppose you, you could put sort of um, decorative borders on your spreadsheets, like oh yeah, uh, like like um, flowers and leaves and so on.
2: Oh, yeah, I haven't got, I'm not that advanced. I'm just, I'm just up to the point where I can do a uh, coloured fill, you know, where you can have the little colour in the background for different topics and so on. So you can keep it apart.
3: Yeah, yeah well, it sounds like we should put on an exhibition called The Art of the Spreadsheet" and like, like, blow them up really big. Um, I would be so in into frame, that. Sell them for like a million pounds.
2: I'm into it. I'm totally into it.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I hope that everyone who's been inspired by this conversation and feels a little bit more like you know, business is part of being creative and that you deserve to make money as a writer. You really do. Um, we've had people on who've talked about money in conjunction with, with writing before, but I think this goes a bit further in terms of practices you can put in place to to make that happen. So, Tom, I'm so grateful to you coming on. I'm grateful that you've written the book and, and that you were willing to talk about it with us.
3: Well, thanks so much for um, giving me the time to come on your show.
2: Thank you so much for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.